yourself to the 173rd episode of Rank and Review, and the theme of this particular episode is crimes, and the co-host of this particular episode is Mitch Oliver. He is the host of the Terror Table podcast. The voice you're listening to is that of Larry Parsons, your host and Random Canadian, and you should go into the podcast as usual, expecting there to be some coarse language and expecting there to be some spoilers for the films being discussed. You can send your feedback to Rankin Review at rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca. And there's a bunch of other podcasts that I would like you to consider listening to. Not only The Terror Table, which is of very high quality, but check out Cobwebs, a gothic podcast. Check out Welcome to Riverdale. And check out the Shelf Shedding Movie Show with a regular guest, Jason Dubray, as the host of that particular number. But you didn't, you didn't, you didn't tune in to Rank and Review to hear about other podcasts. Right now, you want to hear Rank and Review. So let's talk about crimes. Mitch Oliver returns to the podcast, he of the famous Terror Table podcast, uh, fellow Saskatoon-based horror movie-themed podcast. Thank you, brother, for coming back in these very strange days. I'm excited to be here, man. It's been a long time. It has been. It's been a while. I think last time we talked about witches, and we were kind of all business. Uh, I was recovering from illness, and you were recovering from an operation, and uh, we took it out on the genre a little bit, I feel. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. It's also really uh, fun for me knowing that this will be the first podcast I'm ever a part of that isn't about horror movies. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I guess it might almost be refreshing. You spend all of your time with the terror table, obviously dealing with that genre. And I've had you on several times. So was that what led you to crimes? We're dealing with a bunch of crimes themed thrillers. Well, I, I've always been a huge fan of crime thrillers, like ever since I was even, I'm not sure if you'd consider it necessarily a crime thriller, but my dad's favorite movie of all time is Goodfellas. That's and, a fantastic uh, movie. So I saw that at a very young age, and uh, that and Silence of the Lambs, like those movies basically raised me, like I know Silence of the Lambs also could be doubled as a horror movie as well, but I've always seen 
the crime thriller subgenre as like realistic horror and right. i've always been fascinated by it and i i love crime movies so that's what led me to reach out to you and be like hey show me a list i mainly wanted more recommendations for crime movies so i was like larry's probably got 30 of these pictures with six movies <laughs> to choose from <laughs> so uh that was my way of getting some recommendations out of you yeah well i mean just because they're on their list doesn't mean they're all necessarily recommendations as i'm sure you learned the hard way uh, we definitely have a wannabe Goodfellas on this list, I would say. <laughs> it's going to be coming up in definitely one of, one of the reviews that I, I've written down in my notes. There's specifically one movie here that I'm going to be talking about Goodfellas. But uh, yeah, no, like, and that's what I, I know that I come to expect that, that you put a lot of effort into formulating your six picks. And I, I always appreciate that. And I always know that there's going to be some low brow <laughs> there. There's going to be some stuff that not necessarily, that, you know, Generally, most people would say that's going to be an easy bottom. Right. But uh, as we learned on the the witches episode, like I don't know, for a lot of people, I'm sure Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters <laughs> is a terrible movie. I fucking I saw it for the first time because of your podcast, and I loved it. See, this pleases me because like you probably would have never watched that movie if not for Rankin Review. Never. <laughs> Like, maybe if you were trapped on a plane or, like, you know, trapped in a hotel room during a storm or some shit and you had nothing else literally to watch. No, I love that. Um, We talked about, my my cousin Evan and I recently talked about this Ray Liotta picture, going back to Goodfellas, No Escape, from the early 90s. I, I feel like part of my job as a podcaster is to remind the world that movies such as this exist. Totally, and there's actually one movie on this list in particular that, uh, like, we, we've been talking about doing this podcast that we're recording today since probably, I would say, we planned it in January. Yeah. Uh, so a lot has happened in the world, and it's pretty interesting that one of these movies is extremely timely. Okay. And I know we're going to get to talking about that. We'll, we'll definitely get there. Uh, you're, you're not wrong. I feel like we're we're about exactly halfway through 2020 as we sit to record this podcast. It'll be a little later by the time it drops, but I feel like 2020, we just get to do a do-over. I feel like when we hit the new year this year, we should just say, you know what? It's 2020. Everybody gets to go back the clock. Everybody gets to go back a year on their birthday because officially, globally, fuck 2020. Yeah. <laughs> We'll take a mulligan. <laughs> but we have some crimes to distract yeah, us. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want to say by way of introduction before I list off the movies and we do our business? Um, n- not really. The only thing I would maybe mention is that uh, out of like the recent recent years, just a couple of recommendations for people if they have have yet if they're fans of crime thrillers and they have yet to discover the glory of the Safety Brothers. Who have recently put out Good Time and Uncut Gems, which are which Uncut Gems is available on Netflix. Uh, those are both crime thrillers that I am very very fond of, and I I think those two guys are some of the most exciting filmmakers to look out for these days. I'm not sure how you feel about them, but I loved Good Time, and uh, I liked Uncut Gems almost as much, not not quite as much as Good as Good Time, but um, I really enjoyed those 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 films. So. Good Time and Uncut Gems are definitely crime thrillers that are worth checking out these days. Well, I can't speak to Good Times because I haven't seen it. I have seen Uncut Gems, and that's actually nice because it speaks to kind of the anxiety that uh, these movies can produce being close to what a good horror movie can do for me. 
Uh, and I think in the best ways, it works the same way it will in a horror movie. It's less about the boogeyman or the killer being caught, but it's more about, I care about this character, and I don't know how this is going to play out. Um, Absolutely. And there are thrillers that will bridge the gap between horrors directly. I, I always think about Seven and this, uh, is it Korean or Japanese film? I Saw the Devil. Have you ever seen that? Yep. Yeah, well, it's one of my favorites. I, I love that movie. Like, one of my favorite revenge films, too. Can you call those, are those thrillers, or are those just horror movies now? If we just officially... Honest, on, <laughs> I actually, I put I Saw the Devil in my top 15, uh, it's in my top 15 favorite horror movies of the last decade, right. but it's also right. not a straight-up horror movie, so it's one of those ones that totally bends the genre. I reacted to it emotionally as if it was a horror movie when I saw it. It was like I described yeah. it to people as, you know, it's it's for people who liked Seven but wanted something a little dark. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. There's that and like, yeah, same, another one worth mentioning by the same director is Zodiac. Right. That, uh, that could, David Fincher's Zodiac could very much be, it could be looked at in a semi-horror way, but it, it's also just a straight up crime police procedural serial killer film and it's great i love that film yeah i uh but also before we move on heat 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 is the greatest (laughs) we just need to say that i just got to get out of the way that heat is a five out of five movie i just feel like we're talking about crime movies we got to at least pay a pay mention heat here well i feel like i only have one proper 90s like grungy crime movie on this list and it doesn't even have like the Tarantino influence there was a whole bunch of these movies when I was first like getting super into film that you know were wannabe Reservoir Dogs or wannabe Pulp Fictions and some of them are good some of them are bad but because they were so popular when in that time I connected to them I'm still always going to be like if it's a choice between the new cop thriller and the new horror movie nine times out of ten I'm going to the horror movie and again, same thing with science yeah. fiction and largely with fantasy. I'm just more drawn to the, I guess, more fantastic storytelling. But I, I love me a good crime thriller. And uh, because we've seen so many of them, I think it's a harder thing to accomplish well than maybe people give it credit. <laughs> I have the feeling I'm going to come off harder on some of these movies than, than people will want me to. But... Um, uh, that said, I come in as a fan, so. I agree, and I also want to point out that this will probably be, uh, this one I'm, I'm split like re- almost right down the middle. <laughs> I, I strongly like three of these movies, and I uh, didn't really care for three. Okay, so. okay. Well, we'll, the, we'll my, it, it was very, very difficult for me to choose my number one. Uh, I'm going to say we haven't, well, I know your opinion on one of these movies. I was going to say we haven't talked about it, but I know for a fact your opinion on one of these movies. I'm going to say that we're not going to agree on the list, but we are going to agree on at least that one movie. Uh, The six movies that uh, Mitch Oliver of the Terror Table podcast is going to review and then rank with me. We have The Mechanic starring the interesting figure of Charles Bronson from the 70s. We have The Lookout starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt. We have One False Move, uh, a, a kind of obscure but increasingly uh, appreciated artifact from the early 90s. Uh, Kill the Irishman, I think that's the one I'm sort of implying is the want-to-be-goodfellas of this list. Absolutely. We have the Inspired 
by true events in quotation marks. I know that people listening can't see my finger quotes, but the Texas killing fields from the daughter of Michael Mann. And we'll finish up. And who did heat? Who did one of the, if not the greatest crime thrillers of all time. So, you know, that's a, that's, that's a burden to bear, I guess. And we're going to finish with the very highly praised recent thriller, Hell or High Water, starring the dude himself, Jeff Bridges. Let's do it, brother. There are a thousand ways to kill a man. And one assassin knows them all. Murder is only killing without a license. And everybody kills. But when the best in the business... There are times when I could use a backup. ...takes on a partner... I'm going to teach you all I can. The last hit of his life... Play to win, do you? I'm going to pick my own mark. ...could be his own. The Mechanic is a non-stop thrill ride. Charles Bronson. Jan Michael Vincent. The Mechanic. How long till she goes? Just about now. So generally speaking, I appreciate 70s cinema. I know there's this whole wing of like movie snobbery that say like movie as an art form kind of peaked somewhere in the mid to late 70s. And we've just been struggling to, you know, recreate that ever since and perhaps never will. I don't necessarily, you know, agree with that or ascribe to that philosophy completely. But I do think there was a hell of a lot of really impressive 70s crime thrillers. And maybe because of that, I'm way harder on the mechanic than I, I, I should be, than the movie's asking me to be. But I come in with a couple of sort of base questions or problems with the movie. I've, I've, I've pled guilty in the past to having problems with unlikable characters in movies. And I, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, quote, bad men. They could be doing bad things, or a character can be doing bad things. But I want to like them. I want to be able to root for them. Uh, even if they're bad people, like in a movie like Shallow Grave, where all of the protagonists are kind of dicks, but they dig themselves into such a terrible quagmire that I'm like, how are they going to get out of this? What are they going to do? I get involved. And the central figure of this movie, the mechanic, who coldly spends his days as a professional hitman, played by the you know famously stoic Charles Bronson, I find equal parts kind of impenetrable because of the performance, and utterly unlikable. So because of that, I don't engage emotionally at any point in the movie. And because of the the way it sort of plays out in that stilted, drawn-out 70s manner, the movie ended up feeling endless to me. (laughs) And I went in wanting to like it. I mean, I I saw... This is embarrassing to to admit, but I saw the Jason Statham uh, remake that they did, and I did not like it at all. But uh, it got me curious enough of the stories, like, well, was this an interesting movie, like, Once Upon a Time? Like, maybe (laughs) they remade it. They took the time to remake the movie. There must have been a reason. So, for all of these reasons, I am confused. Uh, It's got a good reputation. What am am I not seeing, or or, or in the same page? I pretty much mirror you almost entirely, (laughs) except for I I don't have a problem with... uh generally unlikable characters are following them for the majority of the movie but they you have to have a reason for for doing so and like you like 
I just don't feel like you have that in the mechanic. And uh, to mirror what you were saying about 70s cinema, this is a movie that I watched it for the first time for this podcast. Um, I haven't seen the Jason Statham remake, but uh, I've heard a lot of people who are 70s films enthusiasts, which I am myself as well, uh, speak very highly of this film. And I so I was I kind of thought that this was going to be one of the highlights of the list, and I thought it was just dull. Like I I think like there's nothing even that really stands out about it. Like the the best I think the concept alone is really cool and that's why i was actually going to ask you if you had seen the remake and if it ended up being any better because i'm not really a fan of jason statham unless the film's called crank right um but (laughs) i uh i just i don't know i think i think the idea of the film is cool but jan michael vincent like everyone around charles bronson is just so wooden and i just couldn't buy into any of it it just felt so boring yeah but here's the plot the thing that Sorry, does, Sorry, does yeah. this sound boring? Because, like, here's the story. Professional hitman, uh, interwebbed in this sort of dense underworld of crime, ends up getting hired to kill a close friend of his and executes it. We, we see it played out very meticulously. And then subsequently befriends the kid, the, the, the son of that victim and basically starts training him in the craft of being an underworld scumbag. And sounds awesome. That sounds like an intriguing. Let's show us this world. Uh, I don't understand, honestly. Like he's been in some incredibly famous movies, and like you know, no one can take that away from him. The Wild Bunch, or you know, those, some of those classic spaghetti westerns. Um, but Charles Bronson as a figure, I don't know. He's doing this really sort of stoic, sort of Clint Eastwood vibe thing, like where he just a little's going to do everything. And it's not, it's not working for me. I just, I don't understand his appeal. And as far as Jean-Michael Vincent, I think this is one of his first big movies. But his biggest claim to fame, other than I think Airwolf or one of these really cheesy 80s TV shows, was that he became such a helpless alcoholic that he was really hard to work with. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So. Yeah, and I I don't know. I I actually, like, I, I like Charles Bronson. I think that he's... Like, I'm a fan of Death Wish. Like, I think Michael Winner's Death Wish. That's another reason why I was kind of looking forward to seeing this. Same, same director. director. Yeah. Uh, same, same lead role, or same lead uh, actor. Um, so I was looking forward to that. I'm also a fan of uh, his witch film, The Sentinel. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of that yep. one. Um, but I just, I think, I thought Charles Bronson is a one-of-a-kind kind of actor for a role like this. Like, I think he's kind of like the 70, he's like, uh, actually, what I should say is that Liam Neeson is our new version of Charles Bronson in some way, and I know I'm going to probably take a little bit of flack for that, but what I, my caveat with that is watch A Walk Among the Tombstones, and that that is where I'm kind of... Have you seen that film? I have not. There's oh, been man, you would, it's this, so good. Oh, yeah? There's been so many interchangeable it's, Liam Neeson like action thrillers that they're hard to start to tell apart anymore for me. Every now exactly. and then, like the gray will come out, and I'll be like, holy shit, where did that come from? But it's hard to get excited yeah. about the next Liam Neeson thriller for me. Exactly. They're all bleeding together. But uh, And one that totally flew under the radar was A Walk Among the Tombstones, which is just a really grim, grim serial killer uh cop story it's it's great i think you would be a fan of it but it's it's pretty mean uh but it i i don't know i i'm a i'm a fan of that one and i i see a lot of um i see a lot of charles bronson and liam neeson in that role and i actually 
I, I just see him as being like some form of inspiration for that. But I, I just think that the mecha- as far as the mechanic goes, it's it's a great concept, but there's nothing all that memorable throughout the film to ma- make it really stand out. It's just w- wooden acting, and then I don't know. I don't expect every film to have heat levels of stunts or or anything like that. But I guess the stunts in this are serviceable. I guess, but for um, the time, some of it's pretty kooky. Yeah, <laughs> like the the cliff, the the biker, or the guy driving a bike off the cliff. I guess you could <laughs> um, kind of see that as a an alternate scene for Midsummer with the cliff jump. But was I supposed to howl with laughter when that happened? No. Was that no, the desired yeah. response? No, I don't think it was. Although but it was Larry, hilarious. Was it, God, was so, it was so refreshing after <laughs> just sitting there and being bored. Right? I was just waiting for the movie to pick up, and it just never went. And I, I yeah, it's, this is one of those ones where it kind of feels like, am I dumb for not liking this? <laughs> because, like, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of 70s crime thrillers. Like, I love the French Connection, Dog Day Afternoon, Mean Streets. I like Death Death yeah. Wish. So it's, I don't know, it just, this one totally, it missed the mark for me. Working Theory? I think it's one of these, like, of its time movies. I think if you saw this in 72, yeah. this was, like, super cool and hip and with it and on point. And, you know, those, those weird leather driving gloves and people driving motorbikes was super cool. And, you know, whether or not you thought he was a great actor... Bronson was like the symbol for macho cool of the age at this point. So it fits right into its time and place, as the dude would say in The Big Lebowski. But it only fits in 1972. I feel like the further away from 1972, the more hilarious the movie becomes. It's like, uh, there's a a lot of 80s movies that that have this problem. They're they're great in 1983, but the farther away we get from 1983, the more it's this cringe comedy that you can't really... I agree. And I just think it, it was a missed opportunity to have like such a cool concept of... I liked how the film opened up, like seeing the idea of seeing a guy like Charles Bronson, who's basically a psychopath hidden in plain sight. Um, I like the idea of him going around and like, you know, being stealth about killing people and not just being a lunatic. Yeah. Or like, you know, I, I, I wanted to see more of his... I guess his procedure a little bit more, but then it, it, I think it just got muddled with his his relationship with John Michael Vincent, and I like, it just never paid off. I like that he thought that he was cool, but I don't. Yeah. I think at the time we were supposed to think he was cool, and I really didn't. First of all, yeah. this big twist, which is what I think the movie's really anchoring on. I think we're supposed to be blown away by this heavy, dark, you know, double twist ending. Everybody dies, nobody wins credits um but i mean with with everything that we've seen in the movie why did we spend all that time with him killing this guy's father if that's not going to play its hand at some point later in the movie like i I assumed that like the twist was going to be that charles bronson was keeping his enemies close sort of like (laughs) but uh, it seems i don't know if it was after john man Michael Vincent's character like saved his life during the gunfight that that the trust was officially established but I lost respect for him not seeing this twist coming because it's like the the, the he should not be broadsided by this. Yeah. And what was the deal with the prostitute? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> He pays this woman not just to sleep with him, but to make up this elaborate story about how terribly much she loves him, how much she misses him, and to read this letter that she wrote while he was away, pining for him and needing him so much. 
it is the most pathetic thing. Like it is, it yeah. is, it, 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 it's it's embarrassing. So but between these two things, like him being incompetent in his own line of work and pathetic in his personal life, I was just like. Uh, yeah, you're a bad person and you kill people and you take yourself too seriously and I'm pretty indifferent to your fate. This is not No Country for Old Men or anything close no. to it. <laughs> yeah, I pretty much agree with you right across the board there. Yeah. So, and yeah, I don't know what else I want to say. Like, action's come a long way since the 70s. I don't want to be mean about it, but like... We're spoiled in the age of the raid and like things like this where like a real physical fist fight makes me feel like exhausted from watching it. <laughs> and we weren't yeah. there yet in the 70s. And there is that cheesy screeching wheel, you know, car rolls off a cliff and explodes when it stops aesthetic of 70s movies, which I like. But again, it, it takes any reality away from me. It, it just becomes of its day. It's true. Is there anything else you wanted to say about the mechanic? We've been really mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't have much nice to say about it. Right. There's pretty much nothing else I can say about the mechanic. Well, uh, I, I guess it can go back to being a forgotten relic of the 70s. See ya. I heard what happened to you. And everyone was talking about how you woke up this other guy. Were you with a lady tonight? Where'd you meet her? Gary introduced me to Post family, right? What's this? Yes, this is a project I've been working on. Why are you taking pictures of a bunch of banks? Because I'm going to rob one of them. What is this? You know, I need your help. You want me to rob the bank? Don't you want your old life back? You can't give that to me. I was three years ahead of you and I looked up to you. I'm going to help you. How? Whoever has the money has the power. On the night, your job will be the most important job of all. You're the lookout. Look, I can't do this. Go in there, do your job, and shut your mouth. Where's the money? Start at the end, work backwards. What are you doing here? So I come into the lookout a big fan of Scott Frank, especially like in this era where he's coming out. This is the early 2000s, I want to say. 2007, 2007 yeah. thank you. Um, he wrote two of the best uh, sort of comic thrillers of the 90s, I would argue, in Get Shorty and Out of Sight, respectively. I love those movies. And here he's taking the reins for the first time. I guess he's made enough credit as a screenwriter and a producer. Uh, he's going to direct this movie. Um, and he shot it in Manitoba. Even though it's set in the excited states. So uh, yay for that. Um, so that's, that's the good thing. I, I really like the director and I came in excited. But sometimes expectations can kind of turn on you. And in the way, as much as I'm impressed with him as a director and as a storyteller... I think this is one of my least favorite of his screenplays. I still think the movie basically effectively works. I think the story structure works. And uh, they anchor it around the central character of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's playing Chris Pratt. 
distractingly in the movie, who has suffered a, a, a serious car accident younger earlier in his life, and he has a serious brain injury. And at the risk of airing an unpopular opinion, I think it's a little bit of a movie treatment of a brain injury. I think in a lot of ways this is, I mean, they, they don't completely sidestep it. He has very serious side effects and stuff that he has to deal with, but that component of the movie doesn't play up in enough to the actual thriller component of the movie to me to justify itself in a way the movie like Memento does. And they kind of pile it on with his roommate, the blind Jeff Daniels, comic relief supporting character. They're interesting components of themselves and they're interesting characters of themselves, but why these characters and why are they in this story? And then I move on to the villains, which we have a couple of really great performances with uh, Matthew Good and, and uh, Ilsa, how do you say, Il, Ilsa Fil- Fisher? Isla Fisher? Yeah. Isla Fisher? Isla Fisher. Yeah. But they're, they're good until you think about it. Like, what are their motivations and do they make sense? Like, it seems to me the Isla Fisher character, who is sort of made to manipulate this brain-damaged guy into helping them rob a bank, would either have to be ice, cold-blooded, and vicious or completely stupid and empty and naive and neither of those decisions were made and I don't know if that was the actress or if that was the screenplay I come away liking the movie enough but I think maybe because I wanted to love it because I brought that baggage I can't was like ended up being harder on it because scene to scene the acting is good it's not overly predictable and like it functionally works, but I also found myself separated enough from what was going on to regularly be picking at threads and pulling them. So am I being too mean on the lookout? Or uh, where do, I know this is a very beloved film, uh, but for me, in, in this sort of sweep of Scott Frank's work, definitely not my favorite. I adore this film. Okay, here we go. I love this movie. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so 2007 was a year where I was still I was working in Rogers Video, uh, so this was the glory days of me working my dream job at a video store. That's just the dream for any movie geek at that time. Yep. Um, and the lookout came in. I hadn't actually had heard anything about it. I I had no previous notions going into it, so it was just a blind watch for me. And I, I the movie blew me away. You're and surprised. it became one of those ones that I would... So it de- totally, um, you know, the, your expectations could have definitely played a role in... Or me not having any expectations could play a role in me loving the film as much as I do. But at the same time, it's one that I've rewatched every couple of years. And every time I rewatch it, I actually... I appreciate it more and more. And I think that the screenplay is pretty freaking brilliant. And uh, I, I think it's, it's one of those movies where... Like, I think as a crime movie, it's so successful because it presents these characters who need a a true reasoning to enter this life of crime. And I think that this movie justifies that to an extent. And it, they basically leave it up to Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. And you understand why he would choose these things and why he would believe these characters and how he basically had the cards stacked up against them from the beginning. Uh, going up against uh, the this group of people that wanted to basically exploit him, yeah. And I th- I think you know it was admittedly debatably a little heavy-handed with uh, the Jeff Daniels character being his his blind sidekick who he's buddies with. But 
Uh, he met, he also met him in rehab after that horrific, horrific accident he's in at the very beginning of the film, uh, which I thought was very well directed. I, I do think that there, there, the direction is no no issue in this film. The direction is actually the most impressive thing for me, to be honest. Yeah. Because yeah. you were saying that I actually didn't know that this is, so this was his first directorial, this was his first feature? Unless I'm mistaken, he might have done some TV or something before this, but I'm pretty sure this was his first feature. Yeah, oh no, you're right. This was yeah. He did this, and then walk among tombstones, and that's it. Yeah. Um, so I think I just uh, I'm just into what he does. <laughs> Fair enough. Because <laughs> I love both of his films, but yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and I think that this is the movie that truly displayed what he's capable of. Like I know that obviously even before this, we had Mysterious Skin and a movie like Brick. Uh, I can't remember if Brick came out before this. I'm pretty sure um, it did. Yeah. Yeah, but this is, I think this is his finest work of his early career, and I think this is one of the movies that helped show his acting chops and what he's truly capable of, because uh, this is a really complex role to take on, and it's, I think it's very heavy what he has to, what he has to take on in this, this film, because he starts out the film as this cocky, arrogant pl- hockey player who has the whole world in front of him, and then just in the blink of an eye, it's all destroyed. And that's a tale as old as time when you come from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Right. Uh, I know these people. I, I know these criminals. I know I know this guy before and after the accident. So I really connected with pretty much all of these characters. And I think that's why I kind of understand it. I, I, I took, I, I don't, because I, I'm not saying that you didn't understand their motives. I'm saying that I, I looked at them differently, I think. And uh, I... I guess I just uh, I think I think it all comes down to the the setting of where they're from, uh, what their options are for their lives, and they're at the end of the day they're bored criminals, and they found a way to exploit uh, a what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a disabled key. person, mentally. Yeah, he's a mentally disabled person. The keys, and uh, I just thought it was that's a really harrowing concept for a film. It's and not the first time we've run into it, too. Have you ever seen an early 90s movie called After Dark, My Sweet? I don't think so. I, I No, it, I, I know about it, but I haven't actually seen After Dark. Jason Patrick, the dude from The Lost Boys, is yes. this palooka, this ex-boxer, but he took too many hits to the head, and he's got memory issues, and uh, he gets involved very similarly in a scheme. And the whole idea is that these people are trying to exploit him, and what's he going to do to get out of it? And how, how because he seems like such a perfect victim, is he going to find his way through it? Um, and again, I just think that that paid off in a way that this one didn't. I don't want to, obviously, to go into the third act of the movie. I'm coming off super hard on the movie, so like, let me again reiterate how good the actors are and maybe try to clarify what I'm talking about with the Jeff Daniels character because it's yeah. it's unlike me to say anything bad about Jeff Daniels ever, yeah. okay? I love me some Jeff Daniels, and I do think he's really good in the movie. And yes, it makes sense that both of these people are dealing with a, a disability or a handicap, whatever the right word is, uh, and so they sort of get paired together and they grow up. That, that does make sense. The relationship makes sense. Yeah. But the role of Jeff Bridges largely is the comic relief character, and I have to say particularly, and I'm jumping right to the end of the movie, uh, so if you haven't seen The Lookout, I stand by the fact you should watch it, and I don't, I don't want to be the guy who spoils The Lookout for you, but there's a big standoff at the end of the movie, and 
the Jeff Daniels character is being hostaged and a bunch of gunshots go off and Jeff Daniels character says, what happened? Am I dead? That's an idea that you would have in the writing room and say, yeah, that's really funny. But to me, there is zero reality to that. That tells me that you don't understand or are not taking seriously what it is to be a blind person. He still knows that he's on his knees in the winter in the cold. His ears are still ringing from the gunshot. Is he making a joke at this point? Like, his life was on the line, so him making a zinger doesn't really make sense. It's, it, 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 it's a funny sort of punchy and the audience will react to it moment, but if you think about it a little bit, it, it kind of falls apart. Isla Fisher's character is the same way. Like, does she genuinely like him? And if that's the case, does her behavior make sense? Or does she care nothing for him? In which case, does her behavior make sense? In neither way, in either case, do I think that makes sense. And yet, with those flaws in the movie, it doesn't break the movie. It's still of high enough quality that the, the component parts were for me. I just, to me, it just gets to good, not great, or as you're maybe implying, like, fully excellent. I also yeah. have to say, like, my love for Out of Sight is kind of uncommon. Like, <laughs> I love that movie. I've heard a lot of love for that movie. Yeah. I, I enjoy it. I actually like to look out more. Ah, that's see, there a you very go. unpopular opinion, I feel. <laughs> well, that's what we're here. We're here to share unpopular yeah. opinions. Yeah. Uh, I like the population of the small town a lot, too. I like how likable all of, like, the sideline characters are. So you kind of care about the bank manager, and you kind of care about the bumbling sheriff. Like, the peripheral characters are all good. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, he starts off unlikable, and then he's this sort of broken person who's trying to fix himself. And it's, it's a tricky place when you're dealing with something like this, because, because of the injury and because of the character, in a lot of ways you're coming off one note. Like, I know there's a lot of people who, like, champion Forrest Gump and everything like that. I think it's a fine movie, but I think that it's kind of in a way easy to play Forrest Gump. In a way, once you figure out the character of Sling Blade, Billy Bob Thornton's movie, like once you know who Sling Blade is, every scene is that choice, right? So I, I need to, just, sorry, I need to cut in here. I just saw Sling Blade for the first time. Oh, funny. And I want to mention that in, I was going to mention that in one false move, but so do you like Sling Blade? <laughs> Um, I like it. I don't love it. Uh, it, it's another one of those movies that like, I think got maybe a little bit oversold when it came out. I, I think it's got a lot of good qualities, but, um, what I'm talking about is that kind of performance where you make that choice and that's the right choice and it's appropriate, but that's the thing you do for every scene. And like, it's a hard thing to get around, especially when you're playing a mentally, you know, damaged person because you want to do it authentically. Have you ever seen the Cronenberg movie Spider? Yep. With Ray Fiennes, like, yep. it's a hard watch. And you know why? Because Ray Fiennes is playing it as authentically as he can. And it's hard to watch. Yeah. So they're trying to walk this line where they got this Hollywood star to play the role. And, you know, they want to use Joseph Gordon-Levitt the star, but they can't because the character kind of has him handcuffed a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I didn't fully get that out of uh, out of this role. I'm nor like I'm with you on like it's such a delicate subject taking like to I it's one of those situations where when I start for example when I started Sling Blade I thought I was gonna hate it because mm -hmm. I'm I'm not an overly big fan of Forrest Gump. Sure, it makes you feel good sometimes, but uh, I 
I don't like the idea of people who are not disabled acting disabled, especially in an easy way. Like you said, not to say that Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks is an incredible actor. He's an amazing like, actor. Anyway, I wouldn't say otherwise. There's a reason. There's a reason why every dipshit that you know can do a dumb Forrest Gump impression. Yeah. Like it's it's a uh, it's not as impressive as I think that what Joseph Gordon-Levitt did in this film is a lot more subtle. And uh, that's why I think I bought into it a little bit more. But I also can I can understand uh, how they didn't fully get it get into it as much as maybe you would have liked to truly show the the ugliness of a mental illness. Um, but I just think that the whole purpose of it was showing how he was trying to do right the entire film. He was trying to right his wrongs and turn his life around. And at every turn, he just, he couldn't, he, yeah. he, it was either get involved. He has this opportunity to, you know, actually make something of his life because what he's doing right now is doing nothing. And he, previous to this, he, he knew he was going to be a, an all-star athlete and that that's gone. Yeah. And now he's basically, he's got a, an advanced look at the rest of his life at what he's been dealing with, uh, since the accident. And that's why this crime is a way out. And then I, I think it's, it's all, it's all about watching the, the human turmoil take over and change him, and him not only battle his mental, his mental illness, but show that it's not holding him back anymore, yeah. and that he's going, going to be capable of moving on without being a criminal. That sounds a little cliche and cheesy, uh, but I, I don't think that it came off that way in the film, yeah. cliche or cheesy. Look, I'm coming off harsher on the movie than I mean to, which happens so often when I'm reviewing these movies. Like, at the end of the day, I'm still giving this a thumbs-up review. But for some yeah. reason, it's the flaws that stood out to me. Uh, yeah. And, I think it also could be because you have me, on the other hand, who really liked it. Right. So you're, you're, if you, that's why I don't, I'm not seeing you shit on this movie. Right. I don't, I'm not taking it that way at all. I still am expecting this to be in your top three or four yeah. when we get to the ranking. Yeah. Well, you're not uh, so wrong. I, I definitely am loud and clear. I can see <laughs> I can see that you appreciate the film. Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, and again, like uh, part of it is you bring baggage to movies whether you want to or not. You know, yeah. I don't like Emilio Estevez, so a movie's got to slash against it because it stars Emilio Estevez. My excitement level goes yeah. down a little bit, whether that's fair or not. Anyway, I think it's... I think it's well covered. I mean, good cast, solid enough premise. It's a familiar movie, but it's well executed. There are threads to pull if you want to, but if you want to be entertained by a crime thriller, this is another one. What's the story on this Star City thing? You think it'd be a wild goose chase if you went down there? Welcome to Star City, boys! For Chief Dale Dixon, it's the chance of a lifetime. Follow me! After 10 years of busting people, toms, and stop sign runners, I'd kind of like to take a crack at the big time. These are dangerous people we're dealing with. Get your hands up! Last night, some folks killed a Texas State Trooper. Looks like they're headed our way, boys. Yeah, I've never seen Dale this excited before. It's waiting on the bad guys. We can't wait for Christmas. But his first shot at the big time. I think he looks at y'all like you're some kind of heroes. Well, we're, we're far from that. Might be his last. We're gonna be cool. Damn, it's gonna be a big one. We're gonna play it by ear. Somebody's gonna die. We're not gonna kill him unless we have to. Sometimes the difference between living and dying is one false move.
Okay, One False Move, directed by Carl Franklin, starring Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, Michael Beach, and Cindy Williams, who's the one cast member of this movie that seems to have completely vanished, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it's an interesting crime thriller that, when it came out, sort of flew under the grit radar. The critics liked it, but, like, nobody watched it. And slowly over time, and I think especially when people reassessed Bill Paxton after his passing, this movie's sort of been rediscovered. And this, I think, is a really, really good thing. Um, I, I guess I will drop the caveat that it's not for all tastes. It's a walk, not a run. And its themes are very dark. But it's got a very authentic character-based screenplay from Billy Bob Thornton and his co-writer Tom Epperson, um, where I don't know if we we can relate in some way to all of the characters, with the possible exception of one. We know where everybody's coming from. We kind of understand their their wants and their flaws and what they're after, and it's a, it's accomplished in a sort of sneaky and efficient way. The movie seems like it's this nice southern hunker down on the porch and we're going to unspool you a story. But every now and then, it erupts with a couple of scenes that will genuinely drop your jaw. I think it consciously starts with a very vicious crime to make that promise to the audience that, you know, stay with this movie because, like, we're taking things seriously and there will be a payoff. There will be a reason for all of this sort of ugliness. And for the patient viewer, there absolutely is. Um, it's not wall-to-wall slam-bang action, you know, shootout type of movie. And it's not slick, you know, psychological maneuvering. It's a dense character piece crime thriller. And I really, really like it. So I guess that's where I start with One False Move. Yeah, this one this one flew completely under the radar for me. So... It, what year did it come out again? It's, I think, 1992, so, all right. Um, I would have been two years old. Okay. We'll <laughs> so give you I a pass. Part... We'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm just a very big fan of Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton. I, like, I love them both. And, uh, but especially uh, Bill Paxton is just one of those guys that even, not to, like, because there, there are roles where even when he's not great, he's always enjoyable and this is not one of those roles like he's just he's great in this film uh but as an actor he's he's so likable he's the king of making it look easy to me like he it seems like oh he's just another bill he's doing another bill paxton role but when you really look at it you know he's he's not playing the same character again and again he's just making the character relatable in a way that that makes it sort of feel effortless and that's the thing. Totally. There's a lot of flaws in, in his character. He He's the sheriff of this small southern town, and he has his way of doing business. And there's a serious crime that's gone gone down, and these criminals, they, they've murdered an entire family in a drug operation they were after, and they're going to be coming through his town. And, you know, he wants to stop these people, but he also wants to impress the big city cops. And there's this sort of... Yeah. Uh, uncomfortable comedy almost vibe that develops between him and the other officers but it's layered because 
The other officers do kind of like and in their own way respect him, but at the same time can't help but shake their heads and like be exasperated by him. It's like he would not fly in the big city, right? This this way of operating you can do out in the sticks, but in the big city that shit wouldn't fly. And he doesn't understand that, and he couldn't begin to understand that. Like that's a hard lesson. And the accomplishment of the movie is that we a weaker movie would have made us hate the city guys for being so shitty to the Bill Paxton character, but the movie doesn't allow us that. A weaker movie would make us just hate these villains. The Billy Bob Thornton character looks like a hayseed, you know, icy murderer, but he's thoughtful. Uh, his partner, the Michael Beach character, is maybe the one impenetrably psychopathic character like where I don't really see any light behind his eyes to relate to. But as a result, he becomes a genuinely frightening villain. But yeah, I, I, I love... I think from the beginning, he kind of gives me like a Henry Portrait of a serial killer vibe. Oh, absolutely. Pathological. So yeah, the, he has a really, really demented pathology. <laughs> But I like that we had two sides to all of these characters. Even if I didn't like them, I was usually surprised by the dimension within the characters. There's two other movies that we're going to talk about on this list, which I think are incredibly guilty of being familiar and predictable to a certain sense. Like, we have seen this coming. I think there's a twist involving the uh, the Cinda Williams little boy that is like pretty hard pretty hardly telegraphed like if you're if you're paying attention a little bit that reveal is maybe not the surprise that the movie wants it to be but as i sit here that's as close to a criticism as i can come about the movie yeah 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 it's it's pretty great man like this so this was a first time watch for me and like like i was saying before bill paxton so likable so lovable at all times on the other side of the coin, you have Billy Bob Thornton, who can just seamlessly be such a dirtbag. So I love the the dichotomy between the two of them and uh, them being on the opposing ends. And I, I just thought that they absolutely killed it in this movie. Um, but yeah, and then you you mentioned um, who what who was it? Uh, the the friend who plays what's his name? I'm trying to find his. I name. I want to say Michael Beach. Yeah, yeah, he he is so creepy in this movie just because he's the silent one. He's the and the movie leads off in such a in such a way that you know that things are going to get dirty. Yeah, and uh, that's what I really appreciated knowing that you're you're definitely in for it. And uh, the movie never lost my attention, but uh, uh, yeah, I just I think that there's there's a type of grit in this movie that is just not you don't see it all that often these days it's very rare and uh i just i found it extremely highly enjoyable and weirdly timely and like i was saying when in the intro to this we were talking about uh how we talked we settled on doing these films in january or february and since then we've been there the world has been on fire and this this movie I've actually seen be brought up in a lot of Black Lives Matter uh, posts about it because it's a very time it's a very timely movie to watch and to study, and I think that there is a lot to be said in this film. And once again, it is directed by a black man, yep. and I think that that shows entirely. It shows that it's coming from a place of someone who actually understands the abuse of power and uh, what what it looks like from both sides. And I think that that's such a it's it's treated so well in this movie, 
and uh, yeah, I I, lo- I really enjoyed one sp- one false move. How's this for an accomplishment of character? The the Bill Paxton character through the revelation of the story, in the interest of quote helping this troubled teenage drug addict, impregnates her, <laughs> cheats on his wife, and impregnates this girl, and then sort of quietly bankrolls her and looks after her on the side as best he can as she continues to live a very irresponsible life which has culminated in her involvement with this murder of a family in spite of all of that we really like this character i know and that's that's the scary part about the movie and he's you you see him multiple times be um, quote unquote low key racist. Actually, not that low key. No. Like he he's he's stuck in his ways, uh, and he's very he's got that small town mentality, that small town mind. And uh, I, you mentioned something really interesting about the the difference between the big city cops and the the small town cops, and um, it's it's scary how not different it is in real life uh-huh. <laughs> uh but in this uh in this area it's yeah it's it's, re- it's a really interesting dissection of that just interesting how he deals with like the drunk who's going trying to beat down the door to get at his wife it yep. becomes an intensely physical altercation like that guy assaults a police officer and is threatening his wife's life and at no point is he arrested or are the cuffs put on him it's all it, they they settle it like kids on a playground, and it reads authentic, or at least more authentic than your typical crime, <laughs> which is interesting. Yeah. Now, I've I've said in the past in the podcast to be wary of Hollywood movies that quote feel authentic, but one of the cool things about One False Move is it just doesn't feel Hollywood at all. Uh, I now segue into a very Hollywood movie, but the climax of this movie reminded me of how I felt the first time I saw L.A. Confidential. Because when that movie came out in the theaters, Guy Pearce was some Australian guy, right? And Russell Crowe was some Australian guy. The star of the movie was Kevin Spacey and Kim Basinger, really. That final shootout, I genuinely had no idea how it was going to play out. Same sort of vibe here. It's much quicker. It's much less dramatic than in L.A. Confidential. But I didn't know how it was going to play out. But however it played out, it was going to be on some level heartbreaking. Bravo. I agree. <laughs> like, bravo. Yeah. It's, it shook. It shook us. I watched, uh, I watched mm, five out of six, six, four out of six of these with my girlfriend. And this was one of the ones that hit her very hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was a puddle at the end. <laughs> I just I, I like how a lot of the characters are smarter and dumber or dumber than they look in the movie. Yeah, um, I agree. I also can't stress enough the disturbing nature of that opening scene. The Michael Beach character, one of the city cops, makes this reference that he has a violent history and that he quote likes knives. So it's not just that he stabbed these people; like he chose to stab those people. He bought knives for the purpose of stabbing people. It's his modus operandi but more than that when they first come into the house this they're they're playing with the video camera it's their new toy and he's filming his sister and her friend as they're in the living room just chatting and while they're tying them up and everything like that he chooses to play that video on the tv in a loop in front of them as he slowly murders them one at a time like the (laughs) It, it it's 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 harsh like it is harsh and i don't know that the movie yeah. ever matches that again 
but it like I say it inserts this sort of darkness into the movie that that lulls you into this place it's a promise like we did this for a reason we're we're not exploitative like go with us on this journey trust us and if the movie hadn't paid it off I might be here saying like wow this was too ugly to be you know really enjoyed but it's worth it but like where I started, the two the two things that I could say about the movie as maybe a complaint is that it's so heavy that some people might be turned off by it. And yeah, this the twist about the kid, I think anybody who's seen a certain amount of crime thrillers will see that twist coming. Yeah. How do you feel yeah, that's about that's pretty much true, I mean. Yeah, how do you feel about the ambiguity of it or just generally ambiguous endings where they leave you in a place is he or isn't he alive right is he or is he going to make it through this the movie doesn't give us clear answers i mean we know that the criminals are dealt with we know that the the mother of this child is dead and that this child is looking at his father he doesn't know he's looking at his father and they have this little conversation while he's waiting for the emergency response to find him but credits roll before we're given any resolution. Like, would the movie be better or worse if we had that scene with him in the hospital talking to the big city cops or him tearfully admitting to his wife about the affair and how they're going to have to take this kid in or all of the repercussions that would come, whether he lived or died? I don't think so. And this is, it's a rare case of that because normally I don't like ambiguous endings. Um, And that's actually ironic considering John Carpenter's The Thing is one of my favorite films of all time. Well, there's Uh, nothing ambiguous about that. What's that? (laughs) There's nothing ambiguous about the, oh, The Thing, sorry, I went to They Live. No, The Thing is an ambiguous ending. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was my bad. Have you seen They Live? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, they live. Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. No. Yeah. The thing is what I was talking yeah, about. Yeah. I. I. Um, my. My. My brain skipped a needle there. That's me being stupid. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. And um, but yeah, I don't know. I. I really like the ending of this, but the way I took it is he's dead. Like I thought he was obviously dead. I. I honestly didn't even really see it as that ambiguous. No, he thought he was definitely. I wasn't sure. Like, right. Maybe. Maybe. Uh. When next time I watch it, because this is one that I will revisit from time to time. Um. But I don't know. I kind of like that. I kind of like the choose-your-own-adventure nature of that. But I do think you have to earn it. The movie has to have been good enough to let you get there. Yeah, and this one definitely was. Let the ball blow. Is that the best you know? take this city over. This guy, he went on television daring us to do something about it. Your people, you can't do a simple job? My enemies will be taken care of. Promise. Cannot go to war with Shandor Burns. Watch your back. 36 bombs exploded. Really think the luck of the Irish is going to save you? I've not built a bomb big enough to kill me. Give this to the man who kills the Irish. This is one guy, and you can't take care of it. We shot him, we've blown him up. He just won't die. Twenty-five G's for the head of Danny Green. Twenty-five. In cash. <laughs> Come on, you should be flattered. So let the Kill the Irishman is one of these sprawling true crime epics. 
Um, and it's definitely stomping in Scorsese territory. And I think it's that's one of its biggest hurdles that the movie has to get over is that there's been so many movies like this and so many movies better than this that like it really needs to do something to establish itself to make itself like stand out amongst this crowd once goodfellas has already happened and then like basically you know between casino and the departed he's you, you know been trying at least up the game with his with his crime thrillers whether or not you think he did i i, I think goodfellas is just it might be his masterpiece it's it, i love that movie but yeah. is it fair to judge kill the irishman for the fact that there's so many other movies on such a similar you know yes. subject yes that... <laughs> yes and i'll tell you why okay. <laughs> because it's entirely ripping it off well because it, it's it's taking okay but i let me add a quick caveat yeah. i'm not about to shit on this movie okay because I, I actually kind of find it enjoyable for what it is it's enjoyable to me um but i think this movie is i've seen this so many times someone has a martin scorsese kellering book and they draw way outside the fucking lines and they miss all the important they miss the important the important moments and the important lessons that you can learn from Scorsese and what made Goodfellas that fucking good the thing to me is yes not that the movie itself is so terrible but that what it wants to be is so far away from what it actually is that it sort of becomes sad and adorable as a result and that's not what they were going for. I also think another part of the problem is that the the quality is a little bit wonky. I feel like they wisely spent the bulk of the production budget on their cast, but Great cast. consequently, some of the explosions and some of the special effect works in the movie don't read credible to me. And Which is 25% of the movie by the end. <laughs> that ends up being very problematic because important characters are getting killed off and I don't believe it. I can't invest emotionally because I know that I'm supposed to be stunned by this character's sudden computer explosion, but there's no real weight to it. It's a heartbreaker one to me. It's like one of these movies that like I want to like and I like... I, I I give it like a fifty percent review, <laughs> like, oh, like I literally was about to say those exact words. That's exactly <laughs> I maybe at a forty-eight, right? Like yeah, there it's are, serviceable at best. There are scenes where you can see this working. I really like the scene where Bob Gunton, famously who played the warden in Shawshank Redemption, gets repeatedly yeah. bitch slapped by Ray Stevenson. <laughs> I really we were in for it there. Yeah, and it was like, okay, this is a nice bully gets his comeuppance turn around and but really what's happening is yeah, we have this Irishman, he starts out as an outsider and he wants to climb this ladder, but it costs him some corruption and he ends up not being an outsider and basically being king of the underworld, but at what cost, Mitch? At what cost? <laughs> right? We've fucking been here a goddamn lot. And when but I it's history, Larry. It's yeah, history. It did really happen. And, and, like, you know, maybe this is a story worth telling. But, I mean, take a different track on it. You know, <laughs> uh, there's other problems, too. There are some actors that are doing really good work and some that are sleepwalking. I don't like to pick on Val Kilmer, but Val Kilmer does <laughs> not seem invested in this particular role. Like, <laughs> he just Kilmer, looks bored. Look, he learned the lines. Is that not enough? That's that's kind yeah. of seems like where he's at. 
Um, Ray Stevenson is a guy that I cheer for. I really loved Rome, the HBO miniseries of Rome, and his character particularly in that. He was in this movie called Outpost, this Nazi zombie movie that was just way better than it had any business being. He's in that ridiculous Punisher <laughs> movie. <laughs> like, what are you doing here? And I keep on hoping that Hollywood's going to find a way to use Ray Stevenson, and this just wasn't his movie. And then the really weird one for me, and this was Vincent D'Onofrio, who alternated between scenes where he was excellent and scenes where he was terrible. <laughs> and it was really strange. Like, it was like how awake he was that day or how many takes they gave him on a given day because I usually expect a certain amount of quality from D'Onofrio. He's a committed character actor, but there was something wonky here. It seemed almost scene to scene. And that's the experience of the movie. It becomes strangely uncanny because it's almost there, but it's clearly not there, but you want to stick it out. And Christopher Walken's going to show up at some point. That's going to make the movie kick into high gear, right? Yeah, it's got to. It's got to. Nah, <laughs> no. <laughs> but it says something that both of us are weirdly cheering for the movie. <laughs> yeah, it, totally. And you, I got to cut you off here, sorry, because uh, I've... Like, Ray Stevenson, too. I love that goofy Punisher movie. Right. Punisher Warzone? Yeah. So good. <laughs> so good. And he's such a good Punisher. And I, I wanted to root for him in this movie as well. But it's it's it. this movie has the problem that a lot of these crime thrillers have. And it's that, and you've already sort of mentioned it, is that they don't really deal with these crimes with any sort of weight. By any, by, at a certain point, the car bombs sort of feel slapsticky. Because it's just, and I get that that's, it's history, but you could have treated it with, uh, I think my, my main thing, like the, the difference between this and a movie like Goodfellas or like any, even else, another another Goodfellas ripoff that I do enjoy that a lot of people don't is Blow. I, right. I still like Blow. And, but that movie even, it has, it has moments to breathe and Kill the Irishman doesn't. This movie is nonstop. And it like sure it's it may slow down at a few parts, but it doesn't slow down because of plot development or or character development. It just slows down because that's they're, they're It feels like they're they're following a track and they're scared to roll off of it. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's yeah. You you've already hit so many of my <laughs> so many of the things I've thought about. You and I tend to agree on a lot of things. <laughs> I, I do think there is something weirdly bullishly stubborn about, like, this character. I think the, the Irishman character, I mean, like, there, there's good and bad to that. But never to the point where, like, look, I'm a person who have made it to the age of 42, and I, I don't drive. I don't have a driver's license. I don't drive a car. So if everybody you know has died in a fucking car bomb, Get a, get, get a garage or get a bus pass. Take another option. Like, like that. that's not even addressed. It is seems sort of almost funny after a point that becomes a competition of who can blow up the other guy's car before he blows. Like, that's just how business actually, was done. The, the la I'd say the last quarter of the movie does feel comedic. And that's not good. No. When, especially when you're dealing with the weight... The weight of one of the world's most notorious criminals, allegedly, um, I it just it did not feel that way at all. I feel like there and another. I'm really bad with comparing movies to other movies, but Black Mass. Right. That's a, that's another example of taking it a little too far and going a little too grim. 
uh, which I, I still, I, I, I don't hate Black Mass as much as everyone else does. It has its problems, but um, th- this one, it's it, it's just too bad that those movies couldn't have met in the middle. <laughs> and then you could have had a, I don't know, because to me, I, I this is going to be a movie that I'm going to forget about in two months. Well, and that's that, that should have been my first warning, okay? Because the first time I heard of this movie was in the two for ten dollar bin at Walmart, and I'm like, look at this cast: Vincent D'Onofrio, Val Kilmer, Christopher Walken, and this, this big gangster epic. What? 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 Why is why have I not heard of it? Flags, flags, flags. But for all of that, it's not as bad as that. But it's no, just not. It's not that bad. It's neither neither bad enough to get angry at, but good enough to recommend. So it's in this crazy limbo space. I wanted to talk about two deaths that happened in the third act of the movie that I think are emblematic of like everything that's wrong <laughs> with the movie. There's one that seems incidental. Um, Vinnie Jones, who's a big mm-hmm. deal, for, especially in you know in england yeah from yeah a lot of those snatch and movies like that um he walks out of his house and a dude sticks a gun out of a window of a car shoots him three times he collapses into a bush and the scene is over there was no setup to it there was no shock to it there was no punch to it he was a peripheral character that i guess we were familiar with but like felt absolutely nothing a few few minutes later Vincent D'Onofrio's character has the most telegraphed death maybe in the film in film history here. Everything's gonna work out. We're gonna we got this by the ass. You and me, we're gonna be best friends forever, he says as he jingles his keys and walks towards his car. And again, this moment that should have been like, oh shit, we're losing this character that we love and this is going to be a big loss for Danny. And he was sort of his inside scoop into the whole Casa Nostra area. And he was the one who had his back from the beginning. Yeah, and it becomes hilarious. Like, it becomes like, oh no, you guys, you you failed like about as epically as you can in this this crucial, crucial scene. But Uh, it's not... It's not unentertaining, though, because I did have a big smile on my face when it happened, yeah. but for all the wrong reasons, Mitch. <laughs> that happened a couple of times for me. Even when uh, one of his, like, one of his little, I don't even know what you call him, henchmen, when he uh, is planting the car bomb underneath a guy's car and then it explodes yeah. while he's under there. I was even laughing at that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, what a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Foibles. But yeah. for all of the crap I'm talking about, you know, kill the Irishman, it is the best, better of the two based on a true story movies that we're going to talk about. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, I will agree with that. Yes. Is there anything Spoiler. else you wanted to say about Kill the Irishman? I think we've kind of spanked this kid enough. Um, yeah, just, I, I guess to add a little, like, positives, just more Ray Stevenson. I, yeah. I'd like to see him. And also, um, I don't know how you're going to take this, but I actually, he reminds me of you <laughs> in uh, the scene where he's slapping the, the dude from Shawshank. Oh, really? And that's, I, I like that you like that scene, but, uh, no, because I was like, with the first time I met you, you guys had similar hair, and you're a big, tall guy, and I was like, oh, he's like a big, he, and, and he's also fighting for the people, and you're a real nice guy, and I don't know, I just got, I got Larry Parsons vibes. From uh, there. <laughs> thanks. Uh, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard Ray Stevenson before. I, I, I don't agree with it, but back when I was in university, a lot of people said I had a Michael Madsen vibe. I didn't know how to take Ooh. it. Didn't know how to well, take I, it. Well, I haven't seen you holding a severed ear, so I don't know. <laughs> well, well, he, once this whole pandemic calms down, I'll yeah. invite you over and I'll show you my collection of ears. Yeah, the summer's <laughs> young. <laughs> we 
got a homicide of our own over here. One more big girl. Blonde. Dark hair. This is us. Texas City. Fields. It's not our jurisdiction. All along those bayous, our local people won't go in there. It's infected or something. Hey, princess! Get in. Can't you just go home and watch TV like other kids? I'm gonna ask you a couple questions. See this girl? Which one of you found the hand? You wouldn't mind telling me about the guy with the green Pontiac. Why would he kill her after he murdered somebody cut into him? I assume to send a message. 911, what is your emergency? These are other body recovery sites. This is where the phone call to us originated from. Right over here. Let's go. Come on, get in. What if I can't stop this one either? We'll be waiting for you. So, nepotism. <laughs> um. Look, just because your dad is, let's say, Martin Sheen, right? That doesn't mean that you inherit all of his talents. Doesn't mean necessarily that you don't. Like, Francis Ford Coppola has very talented children, and they do interesting films, Sofia Coppola and Roman Coppola. Like, it, it, it can... Cage? It can happen, that's right. It, yeah, it can happen, but it's, it's not a guarantee. It's just not a guarantee. Um... I don't want to just like write off this director, this, uh, sorry, let's say Amy Cannon Man, but I'm not saying this is what this movie is. I'm saying this is what this movie feels like. It feels like her daddy produced this big opulent feature for her to make as a big splashy debut. And he plugged in a lot of production as if he was making one of his own movies. And on the strength of his name, Michael Mann, he lured a really, really capable cast. And he gave his daughter everything she needed to make an amazing movie. And the movie is just not there. It's just not there. I don't want to put all of it on the director. I'm not here to pick on a new up-and-coming, you know, female director. We need more of them. But there's no reason that she should be in this position, is the thing. Like, most people would have had to have struggled through a lot of indie pictures or a lot of short films or a lot of music videos a lot of, to get themselves to a place where they would be in the center of this multi-million dollar crime, you know, wannabe Can you imagine epic. the talent out there who would just kill to, have, to sink their teeth into a, a story like this? You like got, Texas Killing Fields, based off a true story with a cast like this. You have Jessica Chastain. You have Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Jessica Chastain. I, I'm not going to say nice things about Sam Worthington. In fact, I wanted to bend your ear about Sam Worthington. Good, he sucks. Thank you. Can we spread the word? Because He's fucking terrible. The only movie that I've reviewed that I've liked Sam Worthington in was Rogue. And he played an asshole Australian drunk. I think like yeah. that was just a gimme for him. But he is an empty fucking vessel. He was an empty vessel in Avatar. He was an empty vessel in The Clash of the Titans. He was an empty oh. vessel in like... A, a, like Terminator. A, a, Terminator, perfect example. I have... I, I don't understand oh. it. Where did... Titan? Sa the Titan? Titan? Clash of the Titans? I no, The Titan. No, it I have It was a Netflix movie that I completely forgot about this. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen, <laughs> and it's starring Sam Worthington. Sam Worthington, Taylor Schilling, Tom Wilkinson, 
God, that was a piece of shit. So God, like, I'm so glad I forgot about it until now. I get that you were in Avatar and that Avatar was successful. I mean, it's a piece of shit, but it was successful. <laughs> so, but yeah, like, exactly. it doesn't matter how many bad movies this guy seems to mean. He keeps on getting other movies, and and like he's almost the mirror image of the. He shouldn't be in the middle of this movie, and she shouldn't be the directing this movie. Like maybe he should be doing supporting roles in indie horror movies, and maybe she should be directing music videos. But neither of them should be in this movie. Now look, I I've talked all around the movie. Here's what's true about the movie, okay? There is this area outside of Texas, this marshland called the Texas Killing Fields because of the amount of times they find bodies there. It's like a place that people dump bodies. And there was a backyard. Yeah. There was an investigation uh, that was going on about a series of murders in which police interacted with a young lady, and that young lady did end up in the fields. Those things are factual. Everything else about the movie is... Not only not true, but cliche-ridden garbage. Am I being too mean, or am I being not mean enough? I don't accept any other answer. <laughs> no, man, this is, this is like the equivalent of kid, a kid growing up and saying he wants to be a police officer because he likes Grand Theft Auto. Right. Like, because this kid, like, yeah, and uh, Sam Worthington just tries so hard to overact. Like, he's overacting the entire movie. He's either exploding or he's not doing anything and he's just trying to be intimidating and you just can't take him seriously. I, I, I want to see the movie where he proves me wrong. Like, I would love to be proven wrong about this dude. I but... think Jessica Chastain is an amazing actress and I think she's terrible in this movie. Well, I, think I thought she, she was not good. I think she knows she's in a bad movie and somehow yeah. that is on her face. Yeah. She's still trying to do the character. She's still trying to give the role. But something on her face says... This movie's not going to be good, and I know it. I've seen her do that a couple times, though. <laughs> that uh, Huntsman movie or whatever. Uh, Snow. Winter I, I Winter War or whatever. Snow anyway. Um, <laughs> it's hard to know oh, where yeah. to... Yeah, yeah, okay. Continue. It's hard to know where to, where to start with the Texas Killing Field, but let, let's say this, okay? Have you ever encountered a scene where, where there's two partners... An older, more grizzled one, and a younger, more sort of bright-eyed, naive one. And the grizzled detective wants to be like, I gotta do anything to to get this case solved. I gotta cross any line. I gotta stop these murders. And the younger guy's like, whoa, wait, dude, we gotta follow the rules. And somewhere between the two characters exists a full person. For examples of this, see every other cop movie ever fucking made yeah. okay <laughs> like, Man, this should have been i was so excited to see this movie though in a weird way I, but i remember i it i tried watching when it came out and i turned it off and then blary i i shit you not it took me six tries to get through this thing it's brutal it's emotionally it's so dead and you can it, it's one of those strange things because like it's framed really well there's decent shots there's obviously a good cinematographer at work the actors are trying. It's not like it's not even like in Kill the Irishman where some people are phoning in performances. I think Chastain is trying. I think that like it's just I like Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Yeah. I think he has the best part to play in all of yeah. this. Um yeah. Sherilyn Finn. I want to say something about her. She plays the mother of the redneck sort of family. Sherilyn, yeah. I Oh, Laura Palmer. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, but it was kind that. of nice to see her. Someone dusted off. <laughs> I hadn't seen her in a while. And she's trying really hard. Like, she doesn't but rescue... She's giving the... dog shit to yeah. work with. She doesn't rescue the movie. She doesn't redeem the character. But it was one of the few things... Oh, it's nice to see you. This is the, the, this is, this is the things that I'm trying to cling to to try and find something vaguely positive to say. I actually... I read an rev- article where Michael Mann was talking about how blown away he was when he saw her in Texas Killing Field and the Fields. And that's why I think he cast her in one of his recent films. Oh. Um, but I'm like, oh really? She she blew you away, hey? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. well, and I think this is what everybody else involved in the production was thinking: is like, I'm gonna get in the good books with Michael Mann, and when he makes his next heat, I'm gonna totally. get a fucking yeah. phone call, right? <laughs> yeah. If Michael Mann personally calls you and said, "Would you do a couple scenes in my daughter's debut feature?" Do you say no? <laughs> no, you take one for the team. Yeah, you take you it for do. yourself. Yeah. Um, I, I think a case could be made, and I say this again with no joy, that Michael Mann's kind of passed his best before date, too. <laughs> but there was a time where he was as good as any filmmaker make going as far as when it came to like this type of movie. And I want to kind of sort of ish finish. I don't, I'm not like done with it, but like I, I don't mean to be this aggressively nasty towards the director. It's not fair that she's put in this position as part of my point. Like... She was more than thrown in the deep end of the pool and asked to swim. She was thrown into the middle of the ocean and abandoned. I feel like. Yeah. On a, we shouldn't actually put it all up on her because it's, to me, I think most of the problems lie in the writing. Right. Uh, so that, it was ri- written by Don, Fer- Don Ferron, who also wrote. Uh, well, he, oh, yeah. No, this is a, the only thing he wrote. He's just been a producer on, like, other uh, Michael Mann movies, Deja Vu, Man on Fire, Bad Boys 2, he was an associate producer. Um, Have yeah, you... like, I, but I, I think the writing is terrible. It's all over the place. And also, I don't know if there's another hour of this movie that we didn't see, <laughs> but I feel like so many of these, the, so many scenes don't connect. Yeah. That's my main problem with the movie is that I feel like it doesn't make sense. I feel like it's all over the place. And it, like it just doesn't tell a cohesive story, and it tries to be a lot more clever than it is. And it's like it, it's not nailing down the base elements that you need to nail down before you start getting clever. My, and so it just it's a failure after failure after failure. I've seen the movie twice, and I'm having a hard time like picking out plot points to mention. I mean, <laughs> in keeping with the theme of comparing movies to other movies, as we've been doing a lot in this episode, have you ever seen the Alphabet Murders? Eliza Dushku. No, I've heard about it. Though. Eliza Dushku, Timothy Hutton, and a whole slew of really good character actors. In a lot of ways, it, it, it it's similar in vibe to Kill the Irishman uh, in its production, but similar to this movie in that it's based on a true story and incredibly disrespectful of it. But uh, oh, yeah. similar to this story as well in that, like, you've got all these really good actors. You've all of these components should add up to something at least okay and it's it's embarrassing it's embarrassing like, that's one of michael ironside's bad ones hey <laughs> i love michael ironside but he's been in so many bad movies but he's always working man actors gotta eat yeah and he's always but he's, he does great movies now have you seen knuckleball watch knuckleball i haven't it's a new 
I I caught up with Turbo Kid. I was late to the party on Turbo Kid, and I am such a fucking fanboy. I'm like, oh man, I, I'm like everybody else was six years ago, going on about how awesome Turbo Kid was. Yeah, Turbo Kid's awesome. Are there any other movies you'd rather talk about than Texas Killing Fields? Because I'm down. <laughs> all of them, all of them. I'm done. Yeah. Like I'm done. I, I feel yeah, like I was mean, but I'm done. <laughs> You want a little advice? Go see your boys in the mall. You know, you talk like we ain't gonna get away with this. I've never met nobody got away with anything, ever. And why in the hell did you agree to do it? Because you asked, little brother. Mama, take this badge off of me. I think I got these boys figured. He's got no record. He's never been arrested. He don't fit the bill, Marcus. You may be hearing a lot of things about me and your uncle. Whatever I hear, I won't believe. No, you believe it. I did all of it. Love you, Toby. Mean it. Love you, too. So, Hell or High Water, um, this is directed by David McKenzie and written by Taylor Sheridan. Uh, He considers this, Sicario and Wind River, sort of a thematic crime trilogy. Um, Interestingly, of the three movies that we talk about, I think this is the most conventional as far as its structure and the story it's telling. In fact, a lot of the things that I've been saying critically about the other movies we've reviewed in this podcast, like Kill the Irishman and and The Texas Killing Field, one could almost accuse this movie of being guilty of. It's an incredibly familiar story, with incredibly familiar story threads that play out in familiar ways. But somewhere between this screenplay and the direction and the really, 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 really strong cast... This movie overcomes, I think, all of that and becomes an exceedingly strong, very tense, character-driven crime thriller. The, the movie that those other movies we were talking about all wanted to be, but somehow failed. But I have a hard time actually articulating what this movie does that the other movies didn't do, because the other movies also had a good cast, and the other movies also had familiar premises. But this movie's awesome, and those ones were disappointing. At least that's where I land, but I would love to hear where you are in this one. Yeah, piece of shit. <laughs> just kidding. No, I, uh, oh man, Taylor Sheridan, I think, is one of the best working screen, like, one of the best writers out there right now. Um, with, like you said, Sicario, Heller Highwater, and Wind Raver. I love all three of those movies. Um, had gunned up my head, no idea what I would choose uh, as my favorite of the three. Um, but possibly this one. Wow. And I think I think the reasoning why what separates Hell or High Water, even though it is a conventional story and it is a familiar story, is something that I mentioned in Kill the Irishman, is that this movie allows the characters and the plot to breathe. And there are so many moments in this movie where there in those moments where it's kinda quiet are where you really get to know the characters and their motives and why they're doing what they're do- doing and why they are the way that they are. And I think that that's why this is one of the best character studies 
of what it, why people get into lives of crime. And uh, I think it's, it's absolutely deserving to be talked about as one of the, one of the better crime, crime thrillers of the 20th century. Like, I think this movie is just phenomenal. And uh, it blew me away when I saw it. It was my favorite film of 2016 when it came out. I'm a huge fan. I've always been a big fan of Ben Foster. Um, I haven't seen it, but he was an actor who I hadn't seen reach his full capabilities until I feel like it was Heller Highwater. I thought he was great, and I know lots of people didn't like Alpha Dog. I thought he was really good in that. He's great in Three Tens of Yuma. Um, But it wasn't until recently that, and I think Heller Highwater was the one that was really showing how good of a dramatic actor he can be and uh, how how believable he is and almost how he just gets into every role that he's in but more impressively how chris pine just chewed up this role i think chris pine is a guy who had done the same thing in so many movies every movie that i had seen chris pine in before this he was my only concern when i saw the trailer for hell or high water i was like chris pine is like the that's a weird choice because he's always the you know, ultra handsome guy who could be kind of goofy and that's his charm and that's why people like him. He's not like that at all in this movie. He is gritty. He is covered in dirt and he is just, um, he's desperate. And I, I feel that's like the main, the main theme that I get out of this film is desperation. And I, I just love it. Je- Obviously we got to talk about Jeff Bridges. Yeah. You know, the, like we said, the dude, the dude, <laughs> I expect and, uh, Jeff Bridges to be really good. Like, I just expect him to bring it. And I expect yeah. Ben Foster to bring it. He's been good in enough movies that I, 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 I bring that. I don't necessarily expect this from Chris Pine. You're right. But no. what, what I really connected to about his character, because this movie shares the narrative idea of No Country for Old Men in that we follow a good guy, a bad guy, and a guy in the middle, right? <laughs> uh and sort of Ben Foster's the bad, Jeff Bridges, I guess, is the good, good. And, and Chris Pine is the guy in the middle. And I like it when we see the darkness seep in, when he defends his brother from the bully in the parking lot. When he's, oh my God, that's, I love that scene. <laughs> I love it. It just jacks me up. And it's, it's so, you do not see that coming, though. But that's he's dangerous. So in a way, he's as dangerous as his brother, but uh, he's wrestling with it and maybe making his peace with it. Ben Foster's flaw is that he's never wrestled with it. He's never made his peace with it. As far as he's concerned, he crossed that line a long time ago, and he's forgotten forgotten the line exists. So, like, all of this is really well executed, but again, incredibly familiar. Uh, Especially this this whole business, and it sneaks up on you because it's this charming, balanced, almost comedic relationship between uh, Jeff Bridges and his partner, uh, Gil Birmingham. Yeah. Um... You know, like, the role of the partner in these cop movies is to be likable and then get killed, right? Like, this is a thing that happens. This is the thing that, like, you flag and say, yeah, this is what what we would expect if this was any other movie. So, in like any other movie, I would be criticizing it for being so predictable. Here we have this character, and like he's really put upon, and uh, he has a lot of these funny lines, and he seems to be rolling his eyes at uh, the Jeff Bridges character and putting up with his not-so-cute racism. But the role, the function of that character is exactly what you expect it to be. 
And yet when he gets taken out, it has such impact on both the audience and on the Jeff Bridges character. And it's just the sneaky way all of these characters kind of come to the point where you like them. Even the Ben Foster character, who's easily the most flawed amongst them, we don't necessarily want him to die, you know. <laughs> no, you're. I'm rooting for him still the whole time, even though he is garbage. Like, he, he's not a good guy. Uh, but I'm rooting for him, I think, because also I, the the director and like the writing, it they do a good job of. It, explaining why he is the way that he is and i think the post like i don't want to oh it sucks because i guess you all you always give warnings in your intros that you have spoilers yep um but i just hate the idea of spoil someone uh someone spoiling hell or high water for someone right so if you haven't seen hell or high water turn this off because it's a fucking great movie this was Um, your chance i think that they do a really good job of explaining why why these guys grew up to be the way that they were and uh i think it it, i I always with crime movies i need a motive that's one of my most important things that i need a reason for why they're doing what they're doing and i think that this movie succeeds in spades well that's the thing the motivation is the one thing that's kind of different between the brothers whereas you know chris pine wants to secure uh well, his land back with the bank is trying to fuck him over and take, but not enough so much for him, but for his his ex wife and his kids. Yeah. It's it's not it's not just for the thrill of you know the actual crime itself, which is much more what the Ben Foster's character is about. Like it would be one thing if they were being all righteous about it and saying they were sticking it to the man and they were robbing the bank and get, enjoying that, but. Ben Foster takes it that extra level and smashes the old guy in the jaw when he doesn't really need to do that, right? He just likes being a bad guy. It's not about stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. It's about the just sheer thrill of being a criminal. Then I, th- I think he's jaded at that point. Yeah. I think it shows that he's been broken by the he's been broken by the life that he's lived, and uh, that's the difference between him and his brother. I think it's also there's the whole debate between nature versus nurture, which I know I could be reaching here, uh, but they are brothers, so that's a conversation that you could have, and they are vastly different. But the whole time, you know that Chris Pine is trying to to take this uh, job. It's it's not a, it's just something that he needs to do because it's, he's helping his brother and he wants to secure a future for his kids, and uh, he's doing what any you know. I would do it if I was in his position, like uh, in a certain way. I or not, I, not necessarily. I would do it. I understand where Chris Pratt, where Chris Pine is coming from. Sorry, I'm thinking of the lookout again, Chris right. Pratt. <laughs> but no, I just, I just, uh, I think that it's a really, it's a really interesting conversation to to know the difference between two brothers. Yeah, and I like the Jeff Bridges character, like. A relationship with his partner. His partner puts up with him, I think, because he knows on some level he's a really good cop. Like, he's good at his job. He may be an antique and well past his best before date. And his ideas of what's funny is not sort of, you know, contemporary anymore. But there is that mutual respect there. But I love how fragile Jeff Bridges is in this movie. I love how, like, it when he's, like, sighting his rifle in the desert heat, like, the effort of that seems to be just taking everything out of him. And I also like how, it, 
for the guys in a way it's not personal like they're they have a goal they're gonna reach that goal but for the jeff bridges character it becomes intensely personal and typically in these crime thrillers it's the other way around it's like the 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 tommy lee jones thing in the fugitive my job is to catch you it's not about me liking you or disliking you but in this case he fucking hates these guys now especially once his partner goes down yeah yeah you, you were saying nature versus nurture. These are the I just wrote down as part of my notes, which I just think is kind of interesting, just thematically. But we have rich versus poor, entitlement versus resignation, and vigilantism versus righteous revenge. And I'll put in quotes in... in, in my, I think it was very possible, given the scenario and the limited amount of, you know, shots that he could get off, they could arrest Ben Foster. But... Jeff Bridges chooses to end it that the way he chooses to end it because it's personal. That gives yeah. the movie depth to me, like, uh, and it makes him more complex. It, yeah, it changes the entire conversation on yeah, because like that. Sorry, I I have so many things going through my head because it's it's weird talking about police right now. Right now, yeah. <laughs> With what's going on in the world, and with all this time, like all the time off I've had to to read and keep up with what's going on, I've had a lot of time to become kind of a of a, a little bit of a jaded prick myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, you you understand his you understand where he's coming from and why he would go that route, even though he is a just man, yeah. and that he's shown that he's going to be that way. He he's nearing retirement at that point. That's right. And he's still he's still going to go down that route. And uh, I think that that's really powerful to show that, you know, that you're capable of doing that. I think what anyone's capable of, it's a, it's a, it's really interesting. And that kind of gets us to, we talked earlier in the podcast about, the, I guess ambiguous maybe isn't the right word, but not completely resolved endings to movies where it's all night. Yeah, this is definitely one. Uh, it also made me think, we keep on comparing to other movies, uh, you know, the three billboards outside of Evan, Missouri. In the way it, mm-hmm. it also deals with racism, kind of peripherally, but in, it acknowledges that it exists. It doesn't pretend that it doesn't, but nor does it treat it in any kind of condescending way. And it also has this really kind of troubling ending where you feel like these problems aren't over. This is going to keep on bubbling, and it's going to lead to more bad things. the The two movies are kind of holding hands in that way. But I like that final conversation between Jeff Bridges and Chris Pine, like. Each one has taken somebody from the other, and each one fundamentally hates the other on for that. But I guess there's also a mutual respect. But it's one of those things, it's almost like if fate sends these two on another collision, it's going to get ugly. And we like them both enough that we don't want to see that collision. It's- we don't want to see a Hell or High Water 2 Day of the Soldado? No, we do not. We don't want that movie. <laughs> <laughs> sorry I, i'm so bad at derailing <laughs> no, that's fine that's fine the thing is what what's so impressive about this movie to me is that it really shouldn't work it's so familiar that it almost sounds contrived to describe it but i can't recommend the movie enough it's every crime movie you've ever seen but just really 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 good um yeah, that's I, I agree that's not easily accomplished so hats go off to to the movie for that
We made it, brother. We got through those six crime movies. As usual, I've been doing a lot of Skype interviews. There's been a bit of technical difficulty. Thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> oh, man, I know all about it. I've been doing Skype shit for the last three months as well because of the terror table and COVID and everything. Yeah. Wow. Sorry. But, yeah, no, it's this has been great. And I just want to say, man, I love... I love doing this with you, and I know that it's been a pain in the ass to get me <laughs> to get me here, but I do truthfully love your show, and I love doing this, and this is my favorite part, because I think that it's a, it's a really good way to, to find really cool movies, is to see which ones people like the most out right. of a subgenre. Well, I appreciate it. I love it. I appreciate that, Mitch, and like I, I, I don't want to become a source of stress in your life, but I'll bug you to do the podcast again. I recognize you're a busy man, but uh, you know I'm always. You'll never, you'll never be a source of stress, but I think <laughs> next time I will choose ones that I, uh, I will at least be rewatches because like, this one I had, I'd only seen two of these movies before. Right. So that was exciting for me, though. I saw four movies, four movies that I hadn't seen before because of rank and review. And three of them were terrible. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't say terrible. I wouldn't say terrible. Right. Two, uh, one of them was terrible. Right. Okay. Well, uh, let's hear it. What was your least favorite of these six crime-themed thrillers and why? My least favorite was Texas Killing Fields because it is a messy messy unfocused movie that just it was a i think that that was an incredibly huge missed opportunity um i don't even know if i actually if you could even call that a missed opportunity because like you said they didn't even honor the the sort the source they didn't honor the true story where it came from uh that they were so desperate to post all over the the poster and the dvd and the blu-ray that this is based on a true story um so that's a huge uh red flag for me that really irks me when people when filmmakers do that uh so texas killing fields no surprise is my number six okay my number five uh is the mechanic charles bronson is the mechanic uh or sorry michael winner is the mechanic um not i not a not a terrible movie just not definitely not for for me right. just i think it's outdated um it's been far surpassed by now. People have done this, con done films like this far better, and it's just always going to be one of those ones that's going to live in the shadow of other great '70s crime thrillers that I'm a fan of. Uh, and then I got a number four, Kill the Irishman. Uh, not a terrible movie, but also this is just the yeah, like you said, it's a 50% movie. It's a or how I said it, a 48% movie. Um, it, it's not not terrible, but it's just it's not what I was looking for. It's it's a middle of the road crime crime movie that uh, will pass the time. You may not be angry that you spent an hour and forty seven minutes watching it. Uh, there's certainly worse things you could be watching out there, like Texas Killing Fields, uh, but it's definitely nothing special either. Yeah, my top three was difficult, uh, but mainly my top two was really difficult. But uh, at number three. I know this is where we're going to differ, but number three, one false move. Okay. Um, it was my first time watching it. It may grow on me even more because uh, this is going to be one that I'm going to revisit again at some point. 
I did really enjoy it so far. This absolutely, this was the discovery of my rank and review adventure. This episode, right? Um, this was the one that I was looking for. Every time I've ever done an episode of rank and review, I've come out with one new movie that I hadn't seen before that uh, really, really blew me away. And like last time, it was The Woods. Uh, this time, it's One False Move. I really enjoyed it. I think I think it's a great crime thriller. It's very timely. I think it's one that people definitely need to revisit. Not just because of the late great Bill Paxton, but because of the social relevance that it offers. Uh, I think it's a very interesting movie. This was incredibly hard for me to choose between these two, and I know that that seems ridiculous to you because one is so clearly better than the other. But uh, you actually changed my mind while we were talking. Oh, okay. I, I came in here with a different, uh, with a different answer, with a different number one. But I'm gonna go with my number two. The Lookout. Okay. Uh, I do love. The, I, I love this movie. I love it, and uh, I. I think it's, it's it's phenomenal, and it's one of those movies that I think I would recommend to almost anyone. I don't. I don't think I know anyone who would hate this movie. So it's. I just think it's a really tight, interesting crime thriller. But it's it's not a hell or high water. Hell right. or high water. I think is. Uh, I I think it's one of one of the best one of the best movies of the last 10 years and that goes to show I, I gave it, it was my number one movie of 2016, I think it's phenomenal um, I just think it's a it's an absolutely great movie and it's it, it covers pretty much everything that I love about this subgenre uh, which is crime crime film, so right. Hell or High Water is my number one. Larry what you got? Okay, well look once again brother, we're not going 6 for 6 or 0 for 6, but once again I don't think we're going to fight too much over it, but we're going to start out in agreement, okay? I It seems really unkind to put Texas Killing Field at the dead last of this stack especially because I really genuinely wasn't a fan of the mechanic particularly at all and there is really good acting in it and there is like talent making this movie it's a professionally made mess <laughs> but it just <clears throat> it's emotionally dead and it's a wasted opportunity and considering the subject that kind of comes off disrespectful like you, you... wait a minute are you saying so texas is killing fields last that's right okay sorry i thought you were saying the mechanic was beating no. it. i was like what? I, I say i felt weird putting it at the dead bottom is because yeah. In a lot of ways, I really didn't enjoy my time with the mechanic, which did make it to fifth yeah. place. But I authentically just didn't enjoy Charles Bronson. And if, if you don't enjoy Charles Bronson, that's going to be problematic <laughs> for, for you. That's the, the only, that's the only thing to enjoy about the mechanic. I think that my problem is that I, I came into it thinking this was like a, a, a 70s gem that I missed. And in the end, I think there was a reason that I missed the mechanic. And uh, who knows why they chose to remake it? I don't know. Maybe to certain, you know, certain. It's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But I mean, like, how many how many cheesy Jason Statham movies has there been made about a you know a hitman going off the off the grid? You know, like we've been here before. Anyway, it's 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 not memorable. It's not worth seeking out. Either neither this nor the remake is worth anybody's time particularly. So, Kill the Irishman. We're all, look at us all agreeing so far, I think, right? In fourth place. Yeah. It's neither as bad as we described it, nor is it particularly any good at all. I think that we just have, it's got this rough hewn quality where you're kind of cheering for it, but you can't quite take it over the line to say that it's good enough to really justify its existence. It's, it's not the debacle that, that, 
the Texas Killing Fields was, but that's hardly a compliment. <laughs> so, yeah. All right, and this is where you get mad at me. All the way in third place is the Lookout, and again, I I was way harder on the Lookout than than I should have been in the review. Like I said, you were kind of working the positives, and I was working the negatives, right? You weren't being hard on it, man. Yeah. Okay. That wasn't you being hard on it. That was me being extra nice. Right. I see. Um, it like uh, again all of the all of the movies as like as far as ratcheting up the tension and giving you characters that you like and putting them in dangerous situations and having you cheer for them, it all works. I just I, I think maybe I heard hold Scott Frank to a higher bar or it was just built up a little bit too much for me and it's in a tough crowd. Like the, the there's the the bottom half of the list and then there's the top half of the list. This is where it got really tricky though. The top two. In the end, I, I, I did put one false move in second place, but it was a narrow, narrow, narrow margin for me. I actually genuinely appreciate the darkness and the complexity of one false move, and I think it's a much more singular film, if that makes sense. Like, it stands out from the rest of the lot in that way. Heller High Water is amazingly executed, but incredibly familiar. Whereas I can appreciate one false move that I, I didn't see where it was going at all and really enjoyed it for that fact. But it is a walk and not a run. And, and Heller High Water has regular high stakes emotional payoffs throughout it and a lot of really good acting. And it's just the movie that's going to appeal to the broadest audience. And it's just on this list, it, it just makes sense to be at number one. But the top two were the real... Clint, like that, the, the, if I could do ties, like I would be tempted to do a tie. That's how I feel. That's how I was with the lookout. Yeah. So we were close. It was the lookout. (laughs) And uh, I have to also say, you were talking about how every uh, rank and review you find a, a diamond in the rough. Well, I guess in the witch episode, you found two, right? You found the woods and Hansel and Gretel. The woods and Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. So I might I guess, have found another one, but I can't remember the other ones we talked about. But this one wasn't as... <laughs> those are the ones that stick out. This was a, the less successful list in that regard as far as discoveries. But I do so much appreciate you being here. I have to catch up on the terror table. I was supposed to go on this epic vacation, and I had like been banking and filling up my iPod uh, with like podcasts to listen to while I go on this epic hike. And then COVID fucked my world, and I don't know why. I don't know. I just I haven't I haven't even started cut up, so I've got like twenty episode backlog. But I'll get there. It'll happen. <laughs> hey man, it's all good. It's all good. I'm looking forward to your Nightmare on Elm Street series, though. It's happening. It's we, happening. Yeah, we we uh, just you, concluded that about a month ago, and a friend of the show, mutual friend Lee Beckman, that mentioned that you guys are doing that as well. So I'm very excited true. to hear what you guys think. Uh, That'll be a great companion with our our series. It's weird that we did it so close together, unplanned. Yeah. Uh, I hit a wall. I've been watching them, and I, I got to the fourth one, and now like I just can't. I, I, now it's gonna get hard. It's gonna get hard. Keep pushing through. Keep pushing through. New nightmares coming up. We'll get New there. New nightmares coming. All right, brother. I will let you go. Is there anything you would like to say? You don't want to promote anything other than uh, the podcast. I know Terror Table the, Ventures on. Yeah, the only thing I'll, I'll uh, mention is that we recently. Uh, launched our website we are now at the www.theterrortable.com you can check us out we have all of our, our episodes there and we uh we our website was built by 
John Allison, previous guest of Rank and Review nice. and mutual friend of Terror Table. Uh, he helped me build, and by he helped me, he did most of it. Yep. Uh, he's a genius. Yeah, great guy. I loved him. I loved the episode that you guys did together. I also want to say I love that Daniel Epler called you. Uh, you guys got together to yep. record an episode. That was great. Um, so, yeah, man, I'm just, uh, I wish nothing but the best in the future, and I, I can't wait to be back on again, and I promise next time I'm not going to make it this difficult that, <laughs> for me to record. There's been lots of obstacles, it's not all been you. I'm just glad that we yeah. got it done, because otherwise I might have to face rewatching the Texas Killing Fields, and I didn't, I just don't I deserve that. that. I don't deserve that. <laughs> at that. At that point, we just pick a whole new series. <laughs> Start again. I'd, I'd rather make you watch six new movies than rewatch that again. <laughs> We shall once we will again talk to Mitch on Rank and Review. Thanks so much, brother. Oh, we got through it. There was a little bit of Skype difficulty, but um everybody in the world is communicating through Skype right now, so Let's 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 be forgiving. Let's be understanding. Uh, I know that wasn't an, uh, yet another non-horror themed episode of this season of Rank and Review, but I hope you like that. It was kind of refreshing for Mitch to be working outside of his regular genre, and uh, I'm pleased with the results, and I hope you are too. And you can let me know by sending me feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is rankinreview.ca. I'm your host and random Canadian Larry Parsons, and as always, thank you so much for listening to my show. I drop every other Wednesday. <laughs>